Welcome back, Freedom Pack family. Got a very special guest for you today on the show. As you can see from the title of this podcast, we have got Dan Chabelle, at Dan Chabelle, D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L, on all social media. I'm not sure that anybody can look at Dan and not be inspired by what he has achieved by such a young age. Dan is a man that Business Insider has said that if there's anyone who knows about the keys to building a successful career, it's Dan Chobel. Some of Dan's other feats include being on the Forbes and Inc. 30 and the 30 list, being a multiple times New York Times bestselling author, working with companies like IBM, Google, Oracle, and 33 out of the 500 Fortune companies. Just incredible. But when I think about Dan, I think that the tip of the iceberg, it goes much further than that. So Dan is a research expert. By the numbers, he has interviewed more than 2,000 people that were defined as successful. People like... Warren Buffett, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sheryl Sandberg, you get the idea. (laughs) Dan has conducted 48 research studies into the keys to success in the workplace, and in doing so he's had more than 2,000 articles published for publications like Forbes, Fortune, the Harvard Business Review, and the World Economic Forum. In today's episode you're going to learn about networking, you're going to learn about mindset, and also how we can become, as Dan describes it, back to human. So if you enjoyed today's episode, all I ask guys is that you leave us a review, you subscribe, just anything to help us with the visibility of the show, that would be so much appreciated from myself and Lewis. Without any further ado, It's time to welcome a man to the show that The Guardian describes as one of today's more dynamic young entrepreneurs. Dan Chobel, welcome to the Freedom Pact. So happy to be here with you. Man, it was such a privilege. So I figured a great place to start this call is with one of my favorite podcasts, You have an incredible resume in your life of speaking to hugely successful people, the biggest names in our industry. Just you've just got to look at your podcast, Five Questions with Dan Schaubel, Tom Peters, Steve Harvey, Chris Anderson, Alyssa Milano, Beth Comstock, our friend of the show. What do you think are some of the biggest networking mistakes that people are making right now? The biggest networking mistake that people are making is they need something. And the best way to network is to not need something immediately from another person. So if you're not needy, if you don't you know, need to sell someone on an idea or a product or use them to get connected to someone else, you're in the best position to network. The second you're desperate, if you're unemployed, if you're business is struggling and you seek help, it's harder to get support and it's, it's less likely you're going to want to, you're going to be able to add more value to the other individual who you're looking to connect with. 
So if you're in a position where you're not doing well or you're looking for a job, I think you have to be not only self-sufficient, but you got to be creative in how you're connecting with people. You know, I, I, what I do is ask a lot of questions and I look online. I do a lot of research. I'm like, okay, how can I help this person? What are they looking for right now? Do they have a book they're trying to promote? Um, are they looking to acquire new customers in a certain industry? Maybe I know someone. Everyone has a network. A lot of the times we don't account for it. And we don't under, we don't know how to leverage it. And I think that's the biggest issue is we all have tier one, tier two, tier three networks, and we don't even account for the the ones we already have. Because if we did, there's so much to gain from that. And always be a provider first, because if you're always ask, asking for help, if you're always needy, people will see that, get turned off, and they won't want to connect with you. I think that's such a brilliant point. Do you think that just that being of service mindset could really take someone's uh, networking game to a next level? Yeah, I think that is the way you build a network, right? If you're always a giver, but it's not randomly being a giver. Of course, be nice to everyone, but I'm very intentional with who I connect with. You know, is this somebody who I'd love to have as part of my network, not just for a week, a month, you know, a year, but maybe forever. So I'm always thinking in the long term because if you have short-term thinking, you're not going to be able to connect on a human level. But if you have long-term thinking, then what's it, what's doing someone a favor? So the way you look at networking has to be like this. It's targeting, figuring out the people you can add the most value to and who could best support what you're trying to achieve. Mutualism to, to create, you know, uh, you know, a symbiotic, a mutualistic, you know, relationship where people are helping each other, giving each other support, uh, reciprocation. So if someone helps you, you help them in return. And then my the last thing I abide by is reconnecting. So if this person's really important to you, make sure that over a period of time that you're letting them know that you care and that you're still there providing value to them. And the way I have done that is if I'm reading an article, if I'm meeting someone, I try and forge those connections or send them those resources because I know that by doing so, it's going to help them at that specific time period. The only way you're able to do that is if you actually know the person. So getting to know people is really important, just like getting to know your customer or getting to know your manager. If you if you really understand your manager's needs, you can best support them and make them look good. So then they all, they're more likely to promote you. If your customer, if you know what they're looking for, you'll be able to sell the product or create a product to serve their needs better. Yeah, I think you're ex- you're extremely qualified to talk about this, given the fact that you're on both ends. So now you're on now you're in a position where you know people are actually trying to network with you. You know, recruit you as a guest, maybe or ask you for favors. Is that the first step in your sort of filtration process? Is to think about you know the reciprocity. What can they give me? I used to be like that in my twenties. Now I don't think about it as much. And I, but I think part of that has to do with the fact that I've been doing it for a long time. So if someone says no to me, it doesn't really matter as much. I just go to the next person. And I get no a lot, by the way. I've interviewed over 2,000 people in over 10 years, and I still get no's. I'm reaching out to, of course, very successful people, but I'm getting no maybe 80 to 90% of the time. So you know, even if people think it gets easier, it doesn't really get easier, right? It, and especially for anyone who's ambitious and wants to build a career or a business or a podcast or whatever you're looking to do, no, you challenge yourself more. You want bigger names. You want to grow your audience size. 
And with these these new challenges that you create for yourself or that are created for you, you have to rise to the occasion, and that takes a lot of work. And not everything's going to work out, right? Something along this lines, which which it made me think about, is uh, basically when we started the podcast, and we had interv- and we'd done maybe ten episodes. We hadn't interviewed any guests. We were just reaching out to different people, man, and it was just always a stream of no's. You know, I mean, you talk about eighty to ninety percent of no's. I mean, this was this was a hundred percent of no's. <laughs> and then we we did some say some local guests, and then just on the off chance, we got Beth Comstock, who I know has been on your show, Five Questions with Dan Bell. and she's man, great. She yeah, great great uh, Beth is and. You know, and it was just like that was sort of like the moment that the show, like it, it took off type thing. I wonder, is there like a piece of advice that you would have for someone? Because no doubt, I mean, you've been there as you sort of go up through the tiers, you know, and, and you unlock sort of like different levels, different contacts. What would what would say your advice be to someone that is in that position, say like we were, where it's just a hundred percent of no's is it persistence what what do you think yeah a hundred percent of no's is tough i think it is persistence so i call it the subtle art of patience with persistence so i go for it i email i call i connect i try my best to connect with someone but if i get a no or they don't respond i put it i put a note in my calendar to reach back in a month or six months or a year so some of these interviews for instance take a long time i mean you know, three and a half years, over six years for some. So there's a level of patience. And while you're having that patience, build the platform. You know, I the my first dozen or so people I interviewed were people you've never heard of before. And then I just kept building and building and building. So I think it it's you just have to be patient, but while you're being patient, you have to continue to pursue. And so I'm reaching out to, you know, fifty to hundred people at a time and it's a numbers game, and if things don't work, I'm not that upset about it because in my head, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it'll work next time. And while I'm waiting or being patient, I'm already reaching out to new people. And so it's just, you know, in today's instant gratification world, people want things instantly. But anything great in life takes time and patience. Before before any interview, Lewis Lewis and I we research guests extensively, and you know, mo- um, before the podcast, we sort of merge notes and we look through different themes, different topics that we find. One thing we both just agreed on is that we looked at you and we just thought, what an absolute networking master! I mean, you just got to look at your Instagram, just looking at the guests. This this is just incredible. So. I mean, how long is it before you sort of complete your and you get an Oprah on your show? <laughs> I'm not really sure. She doesn't give many interviews. So <laughs> just just knowing that she doesn't give many interviews and she's, you know, the most successful African American woman in the world financially and brand wise. If it happens, it happens. Mm. If the opportunity occurs, it occurs. If if I want to pitch an interviewer, I'll do it. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And I think that's the, the right attitude to have is always do your best so you have no regrets, but give yourself a chance because anything's possible. So sort of being outcome independent type thing where it's like you've got your goal and if one guest, you know, if one guest 
doesn't work out and we both do the same thing and you know we both testify that you know i mean we get man we get so so many you know so many rejections you know i mean we've been rejected when you're reaching for that top level i mean we've had rejections from you know taylor swift's publicist publicists and you know i'm sure you know you you do exactly the same as well so so i think like that's what that sort of like outcome independent of you just keep going there's that, one more that... there's one more really key thing about this is sure. empathy you have to put yourself in their shoes too so like i'll give you an example you know if you're a taylor swift's publicist do you want to make the call that she should be doing your interview for an hour over writing a new song, right? Everything at that level is an opportunity cost. Or does she go on your show, but not the Today Show? So it's all perspective too and having empathy. That's why, that's part of why my show is so short. It's less than 10 minutes. I only ask five questions. Is a lot of that in the early days came through empathy, through me being realizing, oh my God, like as a busy person, these individuals don't have that much time. And if they're spending time with me, they're not doing something else. And I, that only happened because I got busier with books and speeches and companies. So I not obviously I'm not a celebrity, but you know, I can empathize with what they're going through at that at certain levels. And so because of that, I don't want to take much of their time. I think that it, it all depends also on how much time you're you're demanding from them and what they're looking to do. That's why it's easier to get someone who's promoting a movie or a book or a new company than somebody who isn't because they're actively looking to promote something. It's, it's interesting you should mention empathy. I think it was Simon Sinek I heard on your podcast say that empathy was one of the main skills of the future. Is that something you agree with and, and how far do you agree with that statement? I completely agree. Yeah, he said it was one of the the characteristics and abilities of a successful leader based on his research and conversations. And yeah, chapter nine of Back to Human, the book I wrote last year, is lead with empathy. So I am 100% on board with that. And I think it's not just from a leadership perspective. I think it's from a consumer perspective. I think it has to do with relationships. You know, if you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and really understand what they're going through, you're able to better communicate with them and serve their needs and and really just relate to them on a, on a human level. And that's what we all want. And so if you're trying to sell a product, for instance, and you understand that, you know, your customers are always busy or they have anxiety or who knows what, you know, maybe how you're messaging the product and your advertising or or certain things about the product that could be beneficial to them like you're going to want to focus on that more you know if it's an employee getting to know your employee maybe they want to be the ceo someday maybe they just want a job uh you know maybe they want flexibility maybe they care about healthcare coverage but you only know this by asking them you know i think empathetic questions are really important just to really get a good sense of someone because then you'll be able to connect with them more definitely is such a, a vital character trait and if we stay with character traits would you say that it's empathy which has really allowed you to build such an empire or do you put it down to any other of your character traits i think part of its curiosity i think curiosity mm -hmm. is really important because curiosity makes you want to learn it makes you want to reach out and connect with people and take on new projects and get out of your comfort zone 
you know, if you don't have curiosity, you're just going to be, you know, in the status quo, you're not going to be developing and you'll fail to be relevant because you'll be doing what you did a year ago, five years ago, and things are changing rapidly in our world. And so if you're not learning and developing and meeting new people, you're out of touch and that, that could be judgmental to your career or business. And so I think curiosity is important. I'm curious, Hey, is this person going to say yes to an interview? I'm curious to see, you know, Hey, if I release this research study, how are people going to react? Our company is going to see value in it. Like I'm always curious about not just the art of figuring out something and sharing it, but also on the reactions, you know, because you never know until you know, right? You can survey, you can talk to people and have focus groups, but you never know until you know. And so I always like the journey of trying to figure things out. And then, but once I figure it out, I want to share that process with other people because it saves them time. And I think there's a lot of value in saving people time, especially in today's world where people are trying to hack everything. You know, it's not like we're ever going to get more than 24 hours in a day. And so everyone's challenged with, okay, how can I best, you know, maximize my day to do everything I want personally and professionally. And if you can make their jobs easier, if you can help solve their challenges, they'll be happy. They'll want to be customers and they'll want to connect with you more. There's a question I've, I've always wanted to, to ask an individual like yourself, someone who has interviewed an enormous sample size of successful people. As you said yourself, 2,000 successful people interviewed at this point. The question I want to ask is throughout those interviews, what commonalities have you noticed bet- between those successful people? A lot of them say similar things. So I actually did an analysis several years ago on the most common things that all successful people have in common that I've interviewed. And one of them is they make their own luck. So it's not just like you, you know, get a lottery ticket and cash in. No, it's, it's all about positioning over time. And then, and then eventually you get to a spot where you might get lucky, right? Like, you know, if you were building an app in the wellness space, and you did it for years this year or last year might have taken off because it's so so much more of an emphasis on wellness and people are using wellness apps much more than they used to but you weren't thinking like that you weren't like oh in five years wellness is going to be a big deal and so you made your own luck because you built a business focused on a topic you cared about where you saw a need and then because of that, you got lucky because timing-wise, people, more people are interested in it now. See what I'm saying? So I think making your own luck is important because, because you, it's, luck is not something you can control, but you can control how you spend your time. And if you can work really hard and, and do something that you think is really important and hopefully get traction, timing could be right and you could take off. Um, the other one is they set goals. So everyone's a goal setter. It's not like they wake up and they're like, okay, I'm going to do these things, right? It's they already have the goals predetermined. They wake up, they already know what they're going to be doing. So a lot of people make goals the night, the night before so that they wake up and they know that they have to do A, B, and C. I think that's important. Uh, the, a lot of, you know, they're not risk takers. I think that is interesting. So they, they are the types of people that 
are willing to fail to succeed. They see failure as part of the process, not an end result. Uh, they believe that you can't have success without failure. So the failure is part of the process. And I think that mentality is something that they all have in common. The other thing is, and this is really hard, is they know when to quit. So if, so everyone says, oh, successful people, like they never give up, they never give up. But they know when to quit doing things a certain way and then coming up with new strategies. So they don't so like otherwise they you, people can feel stuck and and just give up completely. They know when to quit doing things how they did it yesterday that are not as effective. And so I think especially in today's world being able to evolve and adapt to change is important and you know not being afraid to admit that something's not working and then doing something different. Uh the other thing is they're great at asking questions. They realize they don't know everything and that the people they interact with on a regular basis know something they don't. And so instead of feeling like they need to know it all, they take a step back and say, okay, this is what I'm, I'm good at. And now I'm going to bring people around me who can offset my weaknesses, the things, you know, they can let me know about the things that I don't know, or I'm not great at. And I think that takes a little bit of humility. And that's why they're successful is because now they're able to, and are forced to connect with people. And the only way to build something scalable and, and really meaningful is with other people. You know, like we need each other to survive, but we also need each other to collaborate and come up with better ideas because we're most creative in conversation. Definitely. And if, you know, we look at the, uh, that question aspect, which you just talked about, but the, I think that one of the reasons why I personally love listening to your podcast so much is just because of the the variety and the sort of the the intent of the podcast. They're all very open ended, very very interesting questions, and I I always love the depth of answers which you get on the show. And you know, I mean, at the end of that, I mean, you talked about how as we're better together. You wrote a book on this. This is called Back to Human. Fantastic book. It's right in front of us by you. And something which I thought you did perfectly in Back to Human was I felt like you drew a line in the sand. You drew a boundary between using a mobile phone for for a purpose versus, um, you know, the mobile phone using you. Could you talk about what that line is. Yeah. So I believe that technology can be a bridge to human connection, not a barrier between our relationships. We tap our phone over 2,600 times a day. We look at our phone every 12 minutes. We send five texts during a business meeting. So basically we're always using technology. I was looking at stats the other day. Teenagers use their phone over four hours per day. So instead of looking at a person, people are looking at a phone. And while the technology allows for collaboration across geographies and um, enables people to share ideas quickly and get in touch with loved ones even, what ends up happening is as you rely more and more on technology, you're spending less and less time speaking on the phone or having face-to-face -face conversations. So your relationships actually start to weaken so in a workplace, that means that people who are 
just using technology, especially using it from a remote location or more isolated, lonely, disengaged, and are less loyal to that organization because there's no human connection. When it comes to, let's say your world, you know, if you don't see and hear from each other for a long time, the connection's not as strong. The, the probability that you'll continue to do the podcast starts to decrease, right? But when you hear each other, it's the beauty of podcasting. It's the beauty of, you know, having employees, connecting with people is when you see each other, when you hear each other, you feel like you're part of something. It's that feeling of connection. It's the feeling that you're doing something, you know, bigger than yourself. And that's what people really want. And so in, in the book, I looked at, you know, what are the four things that create a more human workplace? One is happiness. You know, we all want to be happy. We aspire for happiness. That's, that should be the goal if it's not for you. Belonging. People want to feel like they belong. You know, like their ideas are taken seriously, that they can be their true selves at work. They want leaders and teammates and people they work with to have, be trusting, right? Like trust is the key. You know, there is no honesty without trust. There are no relationships without trust. It's the core. And it's hard to build a trusting relationship if you don't see the person. The second you meet someone for the first time, your level of trust will hopefully be much greater because now you see them. You, you get a, a, a better feel for who they are based on body language and their tone. And, uh, and then purpose is the fourth one. And purpose is is our desire to do something that has a high impact, you know, gives us a sense of being, makes us feel fulfilled because we're not, we all, we are all on this planet to do something with our lives, to make an impact through the work we do and the relationships we create. You mentioned happiness, but it's obvious that we are infinitely more connected globalization has happened, it's allowing us to have this conversation. But I wonder, I mean, do you think that as a society, we're, do you think we're any happier? The research shows we're not happy because we are constantly comparing each other on social media. And everyone has their best PR version of themselves on social media. So we're comparing against each other's highlight reels, against a almost a fictitious image of what people's lives represent and are right and so if everyone's always on vacation or if they have all these fancy cars you know maybe their marriage isn't so good good you know maybe they aren't happy and i think that's something we have to really think about is putting happiness on a pedestal showing people that the goal isn't to be a billionaire the goal is to be happy and if if money can enable you to be in a situation where you're happy, you're going to be more effective at work. You're going to be a better husband or wife. And it, of course, gets complicated when you have kids because, you know, what, you know, what brings you happy, happiness could change. Maybe it's not work anymore. Maybe it is your children and maybe you work in order to support your children. And so I think that changes over time depending on where you are in your life cycle and what your responsibilities are and where you derive happiness from. But everyone wa wants to be happy. 
I don't think anyone would ever say, oh, I don't want to be happy. I've never met anyone like that. And actually, I wouldn't want to be near anyone like that. Right. So I think the goal is happiness and happiness is found in other people. And that's why who you work with is more important than the work you do. That's why, you know, there was a Harvard grant study. It's really famous where they collected data on 268 different Harvard University graduates from 1938 to 1940 and analyzed, you know, all of the data over the course of 75 years of their life and found that happiness is what, you know, had the biggest impact on life satisfaction. It wasn't money or cars or anything like that. And I think in the workplace, if you're working with toxic coworkers and a leader you don't trust, you're not going to be able to give your all in the workplace. You're not going to be the best employee possible. Going back to what you just said, how does social media stop us from creating these these meaningful relationships that you talk about? Is it because, if I take myself and Lewis, for example, is it because I'm texting Lewis back and forth and it's sort of stopping us from actually meeting up in person? Is it that it gives us that idea of an actual meaningful relationship? Yes. So the way I look at it is the technology should bring us closer together. Here's an example. Use technology to sync on each other's calendars so that everyone knows that they're going to an event, you know, and they know, you know, what they have to, you know, if they have to wear a suit or not, like how they have to dress and the expectations for the event. But if you're at the event and you're still using the technology, you're using it the wrong way. So let the technology bring you to a physical location or get you on a phone call with someone. Don't let it trap you on that technology, right? I, and I think that's so important because we're so addicted to, to the technology. Actually, it's created by technology companies that profit off of our attention, like Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook. And so, the, so we are the product you know, that all these technology companies are selling. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware that we're being used in that way and that if we're always spending time on the technology, what is that doing to our lives? What is that doing to our relationships? People didn't have this technology 10, 20, 30 years ago, and they were doing great. And now, with the advent of all this technology, you hear all of these outcries of burnout and anxiety and uh, narcissism in younger generations especially. And a lot of it has to do with comparisons online. A lot of it has to do with technology making us feel like there's abundance, making us always on. So not having your phone is a new vacation, right? People always are always plugged in and connecting. And if you're on vacation, a lot of people answer business email on vacation. Yet technology can be a good thing too. And, but people don't account for the the bad as much as the good, especially because of the addiction. We're just, it's almost like your mobile device is a child of yours. And you actually spend more time with your mobile device than your child, probably. So how can we interact in more meaningful ways then? Well, our research found that if you're in an organization, the best way to do it is to have offsites. So you actually take yourself out of the normal office culture and you go to a a different city or maybe a different country and you have activities, you have dinners, lunches, you have um, exercises, you know, so you get to really 
know your teammates on a personal level and that creates a more human work culture. I think having something on a regular basis is really important. For instance, every Monday, my team and I have a call and it's every single Monday. And so we're always hearing each other's voices. Uh, and then we have four events a year. So every year, you know, we deal with Fortune 1000 brands. We're meeting these people in person four times a year. If we'd never met them in person, they wouldn't continue to work with us. So it's, it's, it's that type of mentality that's really important. If you're your own boss, you have to, you know, put it on yourself. You know, can you meet each other a few, at least a few times a year? Can you use video conferencing more? You know, always thinking about how do I make this experience more human so I feel more connected. I feel like, you know, I have other people in my life that I'm working with. These are not just names. These are not just text messages. One question I, I've always wondered on this. So say I made the decision to remove myself uh, and take a step back from technology now. That's not to say that everyone I know is going to do the same. So how do I deal with the thoughts that I may become maybe outcast from a social circle or I might miss out on certain work or business opportunities online? How can I get that peace of mind and balance to know that I'm I'm getting the benefits from becoming more human, but at the same time, I'm not missing out on uh, any opportunities I may get by being online. You have to be okay with missing some opportunities. You know what I mean? Like, not every, and it's all perception, right? Like, some opportunities are really good and some are just seem good. You can't do everything. You can set up rules for yourself that you only check email a certain amount of times a day. You can get a, you know, an assistant to review them for you. So there's different ways to get around this. It depends how plugged in you are. And everyone's threshold is different. Maybe you enjoy email, right? But again, like sometimes if we send too much email, it can, can be counter effective, you know, counterproductive. So there was a study in the Harvard Business Review that found one face-to-face -face conversation is more effective than 34 emails exchanged back and forth. Because just because we're sending emails and texts doesn't mean we're doing that with purpose and it doesn't mean the other person's gonna 100% understand what we're trying to get to. So I think setting up rules, maybe having an assistant. You know what a lot of people do? They have a personal and a business phone. So after the workday, they turn off the business phone and they just use their personal phone. Now that at least cuts off through business emails and texts. So it maybe decreases by at least twice the amount, right? Or at least half. And, uh, and I think that could be useful too, but it, you still could be using the technology. So one of the things, if you want to get better sleep, you put your phone in a different room because if it's right next to you and you want to use it as an alarm clock, you end up using it and then you delay your ability to get to sleep, which you know means you'll sleep less and that'll affect your next day. Yeah, there's some, some very good tips for there. And for everybody that wants to pick up Back to Human, Lewis and I can vouch for it is a fantastic book. We're looking at it by you. And if we just stay with the book, I heard a, a video in which you were talking about, and it's a concept that I love. It sort of lowers the barriers to entry. You talk about small wins. 
So you gave this example about how what about what you had to do after bouncing back from a series of rejections from publishers. Could you just talk about the importance of, say, momentum building, of small wins, how these have been helpful to you in your own life? Great question. Yeah. After publishing two successful books, I, you know, after a few years, I wanted to get a third book written and promote it. And so just going through the process again of trying to get a book deal was really, really hard. And, you know, I got to a point where all the publishers rejected my book proposal, even though I felt strongly about it and had a good track record. And I was in, I was depressed for four days. And that might not seem like a long period of time, but like we're talking like real depression, like didn't want to leave my apartment. Thank God I had enough food. The lights were literally off for four days. So no sunlight, nothing. I couldn't be around people, didn't want to deal with anything. And then it got to a point where I'm like, okay, I want to dig myself out of this. So how am I going to do this? And instead of trying to do a million things at once, I said, where, where can I find a small win? And so for me, you know, I needed something small, like a little achievement to help, you know, boost my self-esteem and make me more optimistic. And so I wrote an article got published. I think it was on Quartz or some other website. And then that, then I started building momentum again. And then my agent was like, Hey, you want to redo the book proposal one more time? Let's just go out with it again. And so I did and eventually got a book deal. So you never know how it's going to play out. I think that as you were saying, and how, as I've experienced small wins, dig you out of big ditches, right? And so all the small wins add up and start to give you confidence, start to give you momentum so that you're, you know, you are in a better position mentally and emotionally to be able to move forward regardless of the outcome. I had to accept that potentially I was going to have to start from scratch again, even though I didn't end up doing that. Yeah, that's a brilliant story. And I'm, I'm so glad that you persisted because the book is, is brilliant. And your podcast is called Five Questions with Dan Chobel. We have got five questions left, so you can do five questions with the Freedom Pact if you'd like to take part. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so question number one is, what is the dark side of motivation? Yeah, the dark side of motivation is ego and validation, right? It's not something that helps other people. It's something that you yourself are coping with. So for me my my early career my 20s was about validation because i was bullied for multiple decades so i was i was like deeply searching for something that was going to validate me and i found that in personal branding i i found that in publishing online and getting no, a lot of notoriety in my 20s and that helped boost me right but it was it was not it was i don't want to downplay it but it was coming from on a deeper level it was coming from a place of seeking validation for myself to make myself feel worthy. But at the same time, I do think the first book was the most pure because I didn't know any of this would turn into a business. So I wrote the, the first book, Me 2.0, to help college students. I didn't write it thinking it was going to turn into anything else. And I think that's it made it pure, but my deep intent that I didn't recognize back then is I leveraged all of that work on the blog and the magazine, everything I was creating with the book to validate myself. Oh, if I have a book, if I have a successful blog, if I have a consulting company, 
you know, I'm worthy, right? So the intent wasn't wasn't great. It came from the dark side of motivation. The light side of motivation is is being altruistic. It's saying, okay, you know, anytime you're thinking about putting a piece of content into the world, doing a podcast, having a conversation with a friend, you know, how can you be helpful? You know, how can you inject purpose into your work and try and make a difference? You know, being motivated to make other people's lives better is such a big deal. It's actually how we started this interview, right? It's about how do you network? It's making people's lives better is how you network. And then they just want to help you, or at least some will. And so I think that the dark side of motivation you'll find in every single entrepreneur. And you'll also hopefully find the light side in many of them too. The dark side of motivation combined with my anxiety, I've suffered from anxiety for my whole life, um, pushed me to do more and be more and accomplish more. But at some point, you get burned out. At some point, you know, once you've achieved a lot, it's hard to continue to have those feelings. And those feelings could actually hold you back. And I've noticed this. I'm not going to call anyone out, but I do see this all the time. It's like what's really motivating people is proving other people wrong. And in my case, it was, you know, proving a lot of the people who bullied me earlier in life wrong. You know, saying, hey, you bullied me, but, you know, I'm going to I'm going to use this negative energy and turn it into a positive quote. I'd love to ask you about is this which I'm really curious about. You have to be the CMO for the brand called you. Success is in your hands. Build me Inc. How important is personal branding going forward? It's something that was always important. And as you know now, there's a quadrillion personal branding experts. Mm-hmm. So I was really early into this in 2006, you know, personal branding blog, personal branding everything. And I, it's always going to be more important because times are changing. The, the need to stand out is growing. It's harder to stand out. There's so much clutter. There's so much noise. So there's a pressure to stand out. There's, uh, you know, more of a need than ever before to be able to tell your story. People connect with other people and especially through storytelling. I think it's so important. I mean, there's 700,000 podcasts, as you might know. Podcasting is going to be a one point something billion dollar industry by 2023. You know, so like everyone wants to have a blog, have a podcast, have Instagram, Facebook, like they're doing it for a reason is because this is not just how people are connecting, but you know, if you aren't viewed online, if people can't find you in a sense, you don't exist. You might exist to your friends and your parents and maybe your teammates, but to the outside world, you don't. So you're limiting yourself from opportunities. And this is the good thing about technology. It has leveled the playing field. If I didn't have this technology in 2006, 2007, 2008, I would never have been a business owner. Because growing up, I saw my dad who was a business owner and he had to deal with all sorts of problems and that turned me off from being an entrepreneur. And, but through blogging and through doing the magazine, everything online, using all these new tools, I trained myself how to be an entrepreneur. It inspired me. It showed me what was possible at a low cost. Um, so I think it's harder. I'm happy I don't have to start from nothing again. But at the same time, anytime you create something, it's something new. You don't know if it's going to work. And 
that's why you have to keep creating. You have to be flexible and do it because you want to do it, not because you're trying to live up to some standard that doesn't exist other people or other people's expectations of you. Another beautiful answer. Dan, we move to our final three questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Uh, the first of those three questions are, are there any societal norms or societal rules that you love to break? Well, <laughs> in the U.S., healthcare is completely messed up. We need your U.K. healthcare plan ASAP. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think free college, at least for public schools, is important. So politically, we have a lot of problems, and that's why I think we need huge changes, huge, and it's going to take time. Um, I think schools are charging too much, which has made people's lives more complicated. I mean, now you're seeing all these companies like we work with PwC and they're helping, they're helping, uh, their entry level employees pay down student loan debt. That's messed up. $1.53 trillion in student loan debt. So from an American standpoint, we've got a lot of problems that I'd love solved. Number one is healthcare. Number two is education. Number three that affects you too is global warming, just you know, dealing with climate change and getting serious about that. The U.S. is clearly lagging behind. People still don't get it. They reject what 99.9% of scientists say. And then I think the other, the thing that I would say that affects us and potentially, you know, other countries is community. There's a lack of community. You know, everyone feels like everyone else is a stranger. You know, they'd rather look at their phones than say hi to their neighbor. And I think that if we had stronger communities, it would build a stronger, better society. And then the final thing would be homelessness. Homelessness has just been awful in America. And it's crazy because I think what people don't recognize is that if there's homeless people, it affects you. It affects your quality of life. You know, once when I, when I uh, you know, walk out of my apartment, there's homeless people all around my apartment. Right. And that affects my quality of life. And if the government, if people aren't willing to help out, it it's it can be bad for everyone, not just the homeless people. They don't recognize that, though. Yeah, I, I can I can say that uh, those those aren't just uh, problems in the U.S. I'll say I'll vouch for that and say we experience some of those here in Wales as well. Obviously, you're a successful author yourself and our audience would love to know. Are there any books that you have read in your life that have greatly impacted you? Yeah, Now Discover Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham. He, he's a, Actually, he's the top-rated podcast I've done out of the 33 episodes, most amount of downloads. So I admire him. I think his message is really important. It's focus on your strengths. You know, well, you know you're not going to improve that much on your weaknesses over time, but you can really expand on your strengths. So I've always had that mindset. It's like, what am I good at? I'm just going to continue to put more of my energy in that direction. So that's why I thought that book was really important. And then the other book, Strength Finder by Tom Rath, that book was has been very helpful, especially the assessment, just figuring out more about yourself, right? You know, the book's about self-awareness to really read, but also reflect that back in your life and really think things through is, can be very valuable. Thank you. Our listeners will really appreciate hearing that. And our final question we have for you is, if you could distill the lessons you've learned through your experiences in life up until this point 
down into maybe one short but impactful message that you would give to the world, what would your message be? Do as much as you can as early in life as possible. That's my best advice because it's, it's my life, right? I did as much as I could, as early as I could, you know, starting at 13 years old. And because I had that much experience at such a young age, I was able to really understand what I wanted, what I didn't want it and make better choices throughout the rest of my life. And I, I know, you know, you'll have listeners that are maybe 40, maybe 50 years old and it's still do as much as you can right now, because when you're 70, when you're 80, you'll make, you'll still make better decisions. It's never too late to take chances, to meet new people, to put yourself in a new environment. And so I think that everyone can make a difference, can make positive changes in their life. You just got to do, do it now and do as much as possible because then, you know, if you don't know what it's like to, you know, climb a mountain, how are you supposed to know if you like it? You know, if you don't know you like, for instance, for me, I love Greek food. How am I supposed to, you know, why would I go to a Greek restaurant? Like, so I think trying things is important because you, don't, you never know exactly what you're going to like until you try it. And once you like it, you'll, you'll start to allocate more of your time to it and be happier as, as a result because you're doing something you enjoy or eating something you enjoy or traveling to a place you like. Dan, where can our audience connect with you on social media? And do you have any projects coming out that we can look out for? Yeah, you can connect with me. Uh, I'm Dan Schaubel, D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, everywhere. And projects, I'm doing a lot of really cool research studies right now. You can definitely check them out if you go to workplacetrends.com and go to the bottom left. Or if you go to danshawbell.com and you go to research, the research tab has all the studies I've done. By September, it'll be 51 studies. And the last study we released last week was on Generation Z. And we go through their work preferences, technology use, basically everything about Gen Z globally, over 4,000 people interviewed. Amazing. We really actually wanted to talk to you about that today, but and for, but these are the questions which we set our minds on. So hopefully in the future, man, we can do a part two. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Dan. You got it. Thank you so much, everyone.